Acts chapter number 4, beginning in verse number 1. I'm going to read this whole chapter for context. Uh, We're only going to use just a handful of verses, but I want you to pay extra close attention because it gives us a better understanding of of this passage. The Bible says, And as they spake unto the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them. Now, this is speaking of Peter and John, who had raised up the man by the gate beautiful in Acts chapter 3. And uh, we've all heard the verse very many times, Silver and gold have I none, but what I have give I unto thee. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, arise and walk. And we've heard that verse many, many, many times. And we find that when God started to move, it started to upset people. And can I say that it's going to disturb things if God really gets in this. It's going to make a difference. It's even going to upset some people. But that's what we need, amen? If you go through the book of Acts and look at the life of Paul, uh, you'll find one word used over and over and over again pertaining to the life of Paul. And it's not prayer, and it's not faith, and it's not faithfulness. It's the word uproar. (laughs) Every time you turn in the book of Acts and Paul's there, there's an uproar. And can I say that if God gets in this thing, there'll be an uproar over it. And so we see that they have uh, taken them. In verse number 2, it says, uh, it says, "...came upon them being grieved that they taught the people and preached through Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they laid hands on them and put them in hold unto the next day, for it was now eventide. Howbeit many of them which heard the word believed, and the number of the men was about 5,000." That doesn't say the number of the people, but just the number of the men. And it came to pass on the morrow that their rulers and elders and scribes and Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and as many as were of the kindred of the high priest were gathered together at Jerusalem. And when they had set them in the midst, they asked, By what power or by what name have ye done this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Ghost, said unto them, Ye rulers of the people and elders of Israel, If we this day be examined of the good deed done to the impotent man, by what means he is made whole, be it known unto you all and to all the people of Israel, that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom ye crucified, whom God raised from the dead, even by him doth this man stand here before you whole. This is the stone which was set at naught of you builders, which has become the head of the corner." Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were unlearned and ignorant men, they marveled and they took knowledge of them that they had been with Jesus. Can I say you'll be a different person if you spend time with the Lord? says when they, they, they marveled at him to acknowledge that they had been with Jesus. You see, this wasn't a polyperitan thing. They had first-hand relationship with the Lord. And you know, you can tell the difference between someone that's faking it and someone that really knows God. You know that? You can tell the difference between somebody that just knows the preacher and someone that knows God. You can tell the difference between somebody that knows the deacons and someone that knows God. You can tell the difference between somebody that knows about the church and someone that knows God. And there was a difference in these men. They spake with much boldness. And beholding the man, verse 14, which was healed standing with them, they could say nothing against it. But when they had commanded them to go aside out of the council, they conferred among themselves, saying, What shall we do to these men? 
For that indeed a notable miracle hath been done by them is manifest to all them that dwell in Jerusalem. And we cannot deny it. But that it spread no further among the people, let us straightly threaten them that they speak henceforth to no man in this name. And they called them and commanded them not to speak at all, nor to teach in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered and said unto them, Whether it be right in the sight of God to hearken unto you more than unto God, judge ye. For we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. So when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding nothing how they might punish them because of the people. For all men glorified God for that which was done. For the man uh, was above forty years old on whom this miracle of healing was showed. And being let go, they went to their own company and reported all that the chief priests and elders had said unto them. And when they heard that, they lifted up their voice to God with one accord and said, Lord, thou art God, which hast made heaven and earth and the sea and all that in them is, who by the mouth of thy servant David has said, why did the heathen rage and the people imagine vain things? The kings of the earth stood up and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. For of a truth against thy holy child Jesus, whom thou hast anointed both Herod and Pontius Pilate with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, were gathered together. For to do whatsoever thy hand and thy counsel determined before to be done. And now, Lord, behold their threatenings, and grant unto thy servants that with all boldness they may speak thy word, by stretching forth thine hand to heal, and that signs and wonders may be done by the name of thy holy child Jesus." And when they had prayed, the place was shaken where they were assembled together. And they were all filled with the Holy Ghost. And they spake the word of God with boldness. And the multitude of them that believed were of one heart and of one soul. Neither said any of them that odd of the things which he possessed was his own. But they had all things common. And with great power gave the apostles witness of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And great grace was upon them all. Neither was there any among them that lacked, for as many as were possessors of lands or houses sold them and brought the prices of the things that were sold and laid them down at the apostles' feet and distribution was made unto every man according as he had need. And Joseph, who by the apostles was surnamed Barnabas, which is being interpreted the son of consolation, a Levite and of the country of Cyprus, having land sold it and brought the money and laid it, at the apostles' feet. I want you to notice one more verse with me again. Look at verse 24. And when they heard that, they lifted up their voice to God with one accord and said, Lord, thou art God, which hast made heaven and earth and the sea and all that in them is. Thank you for your attention. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I'd ask that your presence and power would be upon the service tonight. God, that you would gain great glory out of what's said and what's done. Father, I, I just pray that you'd hide me behind your cross and let them see not me and hear not me, Lord, but your message and your words and your truth and that the Holy Spirit of God would have great liberty tonight, both in the preaching and in the hearing. Father, if there's one amongst us that's lost and undone, I'd ask that you'd convict and convince them of their lost state. Show them their only hope is the cross of Calvary, Lord. Pray if there's one that is downtrodden and discouraged, they'd be uplifted. One that is haughty, they'd be abased. But God, that any and everything that you do tonight would be found under your praise and honor and glory. And Lord, we'll be sure to thank you for it. 
please bless this service now, Lord. We love you and thank you in Christ's name. Amen. Now, I know we've read a lot of Scripture there, but I think it's important that we gain the context of this passage. Last week, we examined prayer at Pentecost. And we find that the first real New Testament church prayer meeting took place at the time of Pentecost. In fact, we might say that the New Testament church was birthed in prayer. I didn't say birthed from prayer, but birthed in prayer. You say, preacher, what do you mean? I mean, prayer was surrounding the consummation of the New Testament church. Prayer was found all around it. But we find that things have swiftly changed by the time we get to chapter 4. Now, God is still moving, and the Holy Spirit of God still has liberty, and souls are being saved, but we find that they've come up against opposition. Can I say that praying people will face opposition? The devil has a desire for you to not pray. In fact, the devil will do everything he can to keep you from praying. Prayer is the most important activity of the Christian's heart. You say, well, I thought there was uh, this was or that was. I thought that uh, witnessing was the most important activity. You won't have any power in witnessing if you've not prayed. I mean, neighbor, it's not just that you're so wonderful that people are going to fall at your feet and get saved. The Holy Spirit of God has to be working through you and in the hearts of others. And the Bible says that the letter of the law killeth, but the Spirit giveth life. If you're going to be effective in giving the gospel, it's going to take the Holy Spirit of God and it's going to take prayer. You say, well, I thought studying my Bible was the most important thing. Certainly that's important, but can I tell you, you're not going to understand the Word of God unless you're in prayer about it. The Bible says that you have no need that any man teach you. The self-same unction, the anointing of the Holy Spirit, the teacher from on high can teach you the Word of God, but you learn it through prayer. You say, I don't find anywhere where people pray to understand God's Word. The psalmist would differ with you because he said, Open thou mine eyes, Lord, that I may behold wondrous things out of thy law. You could say, well, going to church is probably the most important activity of the Christian life. But can I say that prayerless Christians are the main problem in most churches today? (laughs) Prayerless Christians are what paralyzes the work of the New Testament church. Prayerless Christians are what causes discord. And I promise you, if you're out of fellowship with God, it won't be long before you're out of fellowship with other Christians. We find that prayer is the most important activity of the Christian heart. And so Satan is doing everything he can to stop the church from being able to teach and to preach, but also to pray. But we'll notice from this passage that opposite to the desires of the devil, persecution did not bring a stop to prayer but it brought a savor to the prayer meeting the New Testament church. You know, I think part of the reason that prayer meetings are a thing of the past or seem to be today is because persecution of the church is a thing of the past just about today. You say, oh, but preacher, you don't understand. Somebody else got that promotion at work. That's not persecution. I'm just being serious. Everybody okay? That's not. I mean, listen, we whine and moan about everything in the world. That's not persecution. You say, well, somebody talked bad about me. I know that hurts. I'm not trying to downplay it, but are we really going to call that persecution? Neighbor, read Fox's Book of Martyrs. You'll find out what persecution is. Persecution is when they march your whole family right there before your eyes and tell you you can either deny uh, the Lord Jesus Christ or they'll execute them. That's persecution. Persecution is when they come through the doors of the church with assault rifles and start killing Christians and not even giving them an opportunity to deny the Lord. That's persecution. The truth of the matter is, I think we live, at least in America, at least right now, 
in a largely persecutionless society. Now, I'm not saying there's not uh, vehement hatred of Jesus Christ. That's evident. And I'm not saying that there's not a desire to see the things of God stifled, because that's evident. I'm merely saying we're not really facing persecution. I think probably uh, we'd have more prayer meetings if we had to meet in secret to do it. I think we'd probably have more prayer meetings if we had to risk our lives to get there to them. The Bible, or uh, Tertullian, uh, I don't like to say church father. The Bible says call no man father. But an ancient writer in the church, however you want to put it, said that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. And persecution always brings a closer walk with God. And I believe persecution brings prayer to the forefront. There's a lot of things you can fake. But when you're faced with real, I mean true blue persecution, you're not going to fake prayer. It's going to be real. <laughs> you can fake a lot of things. But you're not going to fake prayer when you're facing the, the barrel of a gun. You're not going to fake prayer when you're facing the death of your children. It brings things to a very real atmosphere. And we find that Peter and John are taken and put in jail. And they're commanded not to teach or preach in the name of Jesus Christ any longer. But, you know, the hand of God is all over this passage because even those that are persecuting them are keenly aware that they can't explain what's happened and they can't explain away what's happened. And so they release them and let them go. And in verse number 24, we have this example for us of corporate prayer. Now, we're not studying personal prayer, although that certainly has a place. And, and we're not just uh, studying uh, personal devotion. But we're studying corporate prayer or public prayer, the gathering of God's people together to pray. Last week we looked at prayer in Pentecost. Now I'd like to take just a few moments and look at prayer from persecution. There might come a day when we do face real persecution in this country. In fact, I believe it's coming sooner rather than later. I believe there might be, and I understand we have a lot of varying age groups, and and I'm not looking for the the undertaker but the uppertaker. I hope the Lord takes us out of here first. But if He chooses not to do so, I tend to believe that there'll come a time in my lifetime when people like me will be jailed for the things that they've said. Uh, statements against Islam will get us jailed. Statements against sodomy will get us jailed. Uh, statements even against tyrannical governments, uh-oh, <laughs> will get us jailed. And the fact of the matter is, I think we're facing that persecution. We don't have to wait till persecution to become a prayer meeting church. If there's any desire that I could have for Wall Ridge, I know of singing churches, I know of shouting churches, I know of preaching churches, but my heart's desire would be for Wall Ridge Baptist Church to be a prayer meeting church. A place where prayer is put at the forefront and prayer is emphasized. That was the New Testament church. We're going to have to get back to it. I want you to look at three things tonight, and I'm going to try to be very swift. I want you to notice in verses 29 and 30, they begin to pray. And I want us to look at the asking of this prayer meeting. What was it that they were praying? Now, there's a lot here. We could look at verses 25, 26, 27, 28, and we'd find a lot of wonderful things. But we find that they are basically praise to God. But in verses 29 and 30, we find that there are three things that the church asks the Lord for, and I believe we need to ask for it today. I want you to notice first thing is they ask attention to their plights. Look at what it says in verse 29. And now, Lord, behold their threatenings. They ask the Lord to examine their situation, to take their stead, their behalf, and to protect them 
from the things that they're facing. Now, I understand we don't have persecution. But let me tell you what we do have today. We do have a devil that walketh about roaring and seeking whom he may devour. And there's other things, though they may not be persecution, that are just as dangerous. I'd say more dangerous. Do you know that apathy is more dangerous to the New Testament church than persecution is? I tell you, our churches, and I don't mean ours particularly, but I mean churches today. And listen, I'm not, I'm not preaching at the Charismatics tonight. And I'm not preaching at the Presbyterians or the Methodists tonight. But I'm talking about, I, I, I mean, shouting, old-timey, pew-jumping, aisle-running, independent, fundamental Baptist churches are eat up with apathy. It's not that we don't want the things of God to happen. We just don't want to be involved in the things of God that are happening. We need to pray that God would guard us from that. And not just to guard Wall Ridge in a corporate sense, but each of us to pray that God would guard our hearts. It's so easy to get apathetic. It's so easy to get to the place where we're just indifferent. Most of us would never be guilty of wishing in our hearts that the work of God at our church or any other church that's true to the Word of God, that it would stop. But we do get to the place where we have this attitude, well, that's good that they're doing it, but that's got nothing to do with what I'm doing. Listen, the only way the work of the church gets done is by the church doing it. Right? Am I okay tonight? Everybody seems just a little... I don't know if you're sleepy. I don't know if you're still in a food coma. I I, I don't know. Am I okay tonight? Is that not true? That the church is a living organism of believers. A church is not a pastor, and a church is not a building, and a church is not deacons, but a church is a group of baptized, blood-washed believers that have come together to carry out the Great Commission and to fellowship and to worship and to encourage one another. And so if the church is not doing it, it's not going to get done. We need to be careful about certain plights that we can fall into. And I believe one of the desires of this prayer meeting that we're having and any others that we have ought to be this. I believe one of the things we ought to pray is, Lord, help our church to be on fire for God. Help our church to not to, to not get into this routine of just being about uh, uh, about the singing or just being about the fellowship or even just being about the preaching, although all those things are important. But Lord, help our church to be one that's on fire for prayer and for seeing souls saved and for seeing church members be found under the glory of God. There are certain pitfalls we need to try to avoid. I think we need to pray and ask God to give attention to those things and ask Him to intervene. I want you to notice, not only do we see that He pray, they pray concerning attention to their plight, but they pray to the Lord concerning availability of His power. Look at verse 29. They say, And grant unto thy servants that with all boldness they may speak thy word. Now, we, we can cut that however we want to cut it, you know. I mean, we can say that means this, we can say that means that. But very simply, if we're to be scripturally honest, what they're saying is, Lord, give us the power that we need to be bold about Your Word. We live in a cowardly day. You know that? We live in a day when people are ashamed of God's Word because it offends others. We live in a day where we're ashamed to share the gospel because we might alienate somebody. God help us if that's not a cruel attitude. I mean, we'd let somebody die and go to hell because we don't want to let them get upset at us. Isn't that pitiful? I'm guilty of it. You may not be. I'm not pointing my finger at you. I'm saying I'm guilty of that. 
We live in a day where we need boldness in what we're doing. I talked to the uh, young adults this morning in Sunday school about having being a deliberate Christian. Deliberate in what we do. You know, most people just are what they are because that's what they are. You know that? If you ask people, if you ask average person, are you a Republican? They'll say, yeah. You'll say, why? They'll say, because I is one. Are you a Democrat? Yeah, I am. Why are you a Democrat? Well, my, my parents were, were Democrats. Or you'll ask them, what kind of church do you go to? Well, I go to a Methodist church. Why do you go to a Methodist church? Well, I don't know. That's where Mama took me. Or I, where do you go to church? I go to a Baptist church. Why do you go to a Baptist church? Well, I got a neighbor. They're not deliberate in what they do. And because they're not deliberate, there's no boldness. They just are what they are. But we as believers are commanded to be bold in Jesus Christ. To take a stand and to be deliberate. And we find that that's something that, it, listen to me carefully, that is an exercise of the Holy Spirit of God in the life of the believer. You know what makes people bold? It's said about, Jan, about Peter and John, they took knowledge of them that they had been with Jesus. Let me tell you what makes you bold in giving the gospel. It's not having a copy of the Romans Road in your shirt pocket. It's not having a New Testament, Soul Winner's New Testament. That's not what makes you bold. It's not that you have a winning personality. It's not that you're like me and you're just so attractive. Amen? That's not. That's how I test who's awake or not. Because if y'all's awake, everybody would have laughed at that. Amen? That, that's not what makes you bold. What makes you bold is that the Holy Spirit of God is working through you as you yield to Him. Now, we're not talking about uh, being slain in the Spirit. We're not talking about holy laughter. We're not talking about tongues. I'm talking about yielding your will to the will of God and to the Holy Spirit of God and allowing Him to use you and work through you because you are not doing what you wish to do, but because you're in communion with God through the Holy Spirit, you are obeying Him and allowing Him to lead you in your heart and life. That's where the boldness comes from, spending time with the Lord. Now you say, I spend time with God. How can we spend time with God? We don't spend time with Jesus. Jesus in a literal sense, because He's seated at the right hand of the Father. We commune with Him through the Holy Spirit of God. That is the access that we have to heaven. He's the Spirit of Christ. And so the communion that we have is through the Holy Spirit. Where does that come from? It comes through prayer. It comes through prayer. Asking God to give us the boldness. Give us the desire. Give us the burden. Give us the heart. You say, preacher, I don't have a burden for the loss. How do I get one? It comes through prayer. It comes through prayer. And I'm not trying to mystify it. It comes through opening your eyes. But it comes through prayer as well. It comes through asking God to break your heart, put it back together and break it over again. Make you aware of the need of souls to have Jesus Christ in their life. They pray and ask for the availability of God's power. But don't you notice a third thing? They ask for answers to their prayers. Now, this seems redundant, but look what it says in verse number 30. By stretching forth thine hand to heal, and that signs and wonders may be done by the name of thy holy child Jesus. What they're asking is they're asking God to enable them with power to speak the word of God and to teach the word of God, to preach it, to share the gospel. But then they're asking God to answer their individual desires and prayers you'll find that prayer is coupled with miracle working in the New Testament. Now, let me be very, very explicit. I'm not saying that it is uh, scriptural in the New Testament church today uh, to heal people. That's not what I'm trying to say. God can heal, but I can't heal and you can't heal. 
And there, there is faith healing, but there is not faith healers. The, the prayer of faith shall save the sick. Isn't that right? And if it's God's will to heal, He can do it. But no man wields that power. And no man can... Listen, if somebody comes up and tries to smack you on the forehead when you're sick, you smack them back. Amen? Uh, that, uh, that, that's foolishness. If faith healers were real, there wouldn't be a hospital in the world. That's silly. I'm not talking about that. I'm, I know we're not going to heal. I know we're not going to raise the dead. I, I know we're not going to do these things. But at the end of the day, what they're really asking is, Lord, we want you to answer these prayers that we're asking you for. You find that prayers are connected with the miracles. And I believe that whenever they healed somebody, I believe they prayed and asked God to heal them. I don't believe it was just a supernatural on the head. But I believe they asked God to heal that person and God answered that prayer. Now let's juxtapose this beside our everyday life. I believe it's scriptural not only to pray, but to ask God to answer our prayers. I believe that's important. I believe we ought to be specific in our prayers. I believe part of the reason for the weakness in our prayer lives is because we're not specific when we pray. And I believe we're not specific when we pray because we're afraid God's not going to answer how we want. I think when we pray, we need to ask God to do specific things. Lord, I, I need this job, and I want your will for my life. But God, my heart's desire is to have that job. And so, Lord, either give me that job or change my understanding, change my heart about the matter. And God, I'll be sure to praise you and glorify. Lord, I'm sick. And if it's your will, I'd like to be healed. God, I want your will above all, but I'm asking you to heal me. Those are specific prayers. And you know what God does? He answers them specifically. I can give you instance after instance after instance. And I like it. You know, we have it from time to time. Somebody will stand up and say, I, I want to praise the Lord for this. It's a small thing. It seems insignificant. But the Lord did it in my heart, in my everyday life. Growing up, Dad, you know my dad. <laughs> and uh, he's I, I, he's sick. I guess he's not here. Either that or Mom finally got fed up and finished him off. And, but uh, Dad, Dad is one of these that, that when he went to fix something, now he's smart and he knows how to fix things, but when he'd go to fix something, he'd, he'd have a thumb here and a thumb here, and then all of a sudden he'd have a thumb here, 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 and here. He just turned all thumbs, he'd have two, two left hands, amen? Or I guess for him he's left hand, so he'd have, he'd have two right hands. And it never failed. I mean, he, it's a good thing they put extra screws in the packets of putting things together, you know, because he always lost one. In fact, he usually lost enough that he still had to have one to finish. And I can't tell you how many times, this may seem silly to you, but you bear with me because it's got a truth in it. I can't tell you how many times I've seen my daddy pray and ask the Lord to help him find a little nutter, a little bolt, a little screw. I can't tell you how many times I've seen my daddy pray and ask God to help him get something shifted or moved or, or fixed in some way and seen God answer it. Seen God answer it. You say, well, now, you know, he would have got that fixed sooner or later. Not when he's been wallowing with it for six hours. He prays and asks God to do it, and in two minutes it's fixed. And you say, that's insignificant. That's a small problem. How many problems have you got that are big to God? The fact of the matter is this. You pray specifically, God answers specifically. We could go down the line, couldn't we? we go down the line. I remember, I remember Miss Lou sitting in the hospital when they told you you had cancer. And that's, that's cutting you open, not to find out if you had it, find out how much you had. How much you had. 
and we were sitting there, and the family was sitting there, and Charlie, Charlie was outside smoking, but we, <laughs> no, I'm picking at him. We, we was all sitting there, and the doctor came back early. Now, if you've ever sat with people, you know that's either really good or really bad when the doctor comes back early. And the doctor came back, and, you know, of course, I, I didn't go and confer with I just sat there and watched. And I, and I can't remember, I think it was Gay Ann or, or, you know, one of the family that was there came back and said they opened it up and there's no cancer. None. They weren't cutting her open to find out if she had it. They were cutting her open to find out how much she had. But we prayed and we asked the Lord, Lord, if it's your will, we want you to heal her of that. You know what he did? He answered specifically. I remember sitting down in the hospital bed, Park West Hospital with Ralph. He says, I went down and stayed with him. I couldn't get him to go to sleep. He sat there and talked to me all night. The next night I went and stayed with him again. He said, Preacher, uh, I ain't going to be able to stay up and talk like last night. I never told him this, but I said, Hallelujah, I can get some sleep. <laughs> Most of you know Ralph got bad, man. I mean, he was on a walker. He couldn't talk. We couldn't figure out what was wrong. And I really, and I've never told Ralph this, but I really thought you'd be the first Walridge funeral I'd preach. I mean, there's times when I thought that. We prayed and we asked God to fix the problem and to heal him. And pretty soon they tested and they found out that chemo was what was causing it. Now, now Ralph is up and he's functioning and he's going. You say, that's health. I give you money instances. I, I, I could give you family problems. I could go down the line and show you where God has met in a big, big, big way. You know why? Because God's people prayed specifically. Specifically. We see the asking of this prayer meeting. I want you to see the answers of this prayer meeting. Look at verse number 31. Uh, the Bible says in the first part of the verse, and when they had prayed, the place was shaken where they were assembled together. We find God's presence in answer to their prayers. It shook the place when God came in. You ever been to service like that? Man, I have. It shook the place when God showed up. I don't mean it literally, physically shook, but I mean you could almost watch it wash over a service when God began to move on hearts. We find out that when God's people prayed that He showed up. I said it last week. How often, how silly would it be if I was to uh, go to a certain place and uh, expect to meet someone? I used Daniel last week, I'll use him again this week. How silly would it be if I went down to the Walmart and Daniel wasn't there and I got upset and I said, and I called him, I said, Daniel, where's you at? You didn't meet me. He said, well, Toby, you never called me and asked me to. You never told me I needed to meet you there. You never coveted my presence. Wouldn't that be silly for me to get upset? But time and time again, we come through the double doors of the church house and we have a service and we're praying and we're asking God to meet a need. And then we go out and we say, well, Lord didn't meet with me today. Well, did you ask Him to? Did you ask Him to meet with you? God has a desire to meet with His people. Now, I'm not talking about some kind of charismatic or apostolic manifestation. I'm talking about the moving of the Holy Ghost in the hearts and lives of His people. We find God's power was present there. The Bible says that they were filled with the Holy Ghost. You say, that's charismatic. No, that's Bible. I said it last week. There's three different things that are referred to concerning the Holy Spirit. Uh, there's the indwelling of the Holy Spirit that's freely given to each and every believer unconditionally. If you accept Christ as your Savior, the Holy Spirit of God indwells you. There's the baptism of the Holy Spirit. That's the means through which we are placed into the body of Christ. We are baptized by one Spirit into His body. That's what the uh, book of, I believe it's 1 Corinthians says. And, and we're placed into His body. Now, there was a time 
when the baptism and the indwelling could take place two separate times. It was a dispensational reason. But today we find out, and, and ever since the apostolic times, that the baptism of the Holy Ghost and the indwelling of the Holy Ghost are always completely and inseparably tied together. When you're saved and dwelt by the Holy Spirit, you're baptized by one Spirit into His body. You're part of the church. But we find that there's a third thing that's spoken of, and that's the filling of the Holy Ghost. The filling of the Holy Ghost is not something that is automatic. The filling of the Holy Ghost is not something uh, that is unlosable, if we could use that word for it. Because the Bible commands us to be filled with the Spirit. And so if the Bible has to command us to be filled with the Spirit, then that means that there's times when we're not filled with the Spirit, and that means there's certain things we have to do to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Now you say, oh, you mean filled with the Holy Spirit like speaking in tongues. No, they didn't speak in tongues in Acts chapter 4. They didn't speak gibberish in Acts chapter 2 either. <laughs> you say, oh, well, you mean slain in the Spirit, you know, laying in the floor. No, no. When, when, God, when God's Spirit moves on, you don't make you stay, it makes you go. <laughs> no, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm not talking about any of that foolishness. What I'm talking about is the Holy Spirit of God having so much control of you that when people look at your life, they don't see your actions, they see His. That's what the filling of the Holy Ghost is. Empty yourself, filled with Him and His influence, His presence in your life. And we find that God's presence was there, but His power was there through the Holy Ghost. We find that God got a hold of them. Boy, let me tell you something. It's time we need a generation of people that are willing to be filled with the Holy Ghost. I mean, I can't say it no plainer. The church has been bereft for so long of people that are willing to be filled with the Holy Ghost that it's become a foreign thing to us. I mean, we, you know, we, and, and I praise the Lord that our church is not this way. I mean, I'm thankful that there's liberty to worship God in this place. And I'm not trying to, uh, to in, uh, definitely tie emotional displays with the filling of the Holy Ghost, because I'm not saying that those two things always occur. But let me just say, there's a lot of churches in this city that if somebody raised a hand up, they'd want to ask them what their question was. Amen? There's a lot of churches in this city where, where somebody said, Hey, man! They'd say, uh, the lobby's out there if you need to go. You heard about what old Mays Jackson said. Uh, you, you heard about he was in that meeting, and a lot of y'all know knew Mays, and he was in a meeting, and, and he was uh, he was up there, and he had been preaching away, and, and uh, this lady in the back was starting to get happy in the Lord, you know. And she'd sit there, and she'd, whoo, you know, and she'd shout and everything. And Mays could tell that pastor back behind, he's getting nervous. You know, it was frigid. Somebody turned the air conditioning on, you could feel it, you know. And the church was starting to get a little, little nervous. And uh, so finally, finally that preacher leaned forward and said, Mays, you need to sit her down. And Mays just kept on preaching, kept on preaching. And that pastor leaned forward and said, Mays, you need to sit her down. And Mays just kept preaching. And finally, that pastor leaned for a third time said, Mays, you need to say, he whipped around and said, I didn't stand her up. I ain't going to sit her down. Amen. <laughs> and so finally, the deacons went back to, to escort her out. And they, they, I mean, they were literally having to carry this lady out. And Brother Mays said, Sister, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. She yelled back said, Don't worry about it, Brother Mays. said, uh, Our Lord rode a donkey in and I'm riding two out. Amen. <laughs> There's churches where they wouldn't know what to do if, if God got in a service. They'd mess up their program, mess up their machine. The truth of the matter is, that's what the church desperately needs. We're raising a generation of young people that don't know what true Holy Ghost revival is. It's foreign to them. They don't know what it is. 
we find that God's power was there. But notice God's present or present, His purpose was there. They spake the word of God with boldness. That's really what God's driving at, you know. God's driving for us to to be active, vocal Christians. That's what God's driving at. Listen, all your religion in the world don't amount to nothing if you won't give the gospel to those around you. It don't mean a thing. You say, oh, preacher, you don't know my situation. You don't understand. Hey, listen, you take it up with the Lord. The Lord says we're to preach the gospel to every creature. And that wasn't given to the pastor. That wasn't given to the deacons. That wasn't given to the lay preachers. But every single New Testament born-again, blood-washed believer has a responsibility to share the gospel. I know not everybody can get out and pound the pavement, walk up and down the road. I, I get that. I understand that. But most of us go to the grocery store. Most of God help us, all of us go to the Walmart. <laughs> we have people that we can give the gospel to. Now, the truth of the matter is, God's purpose is made clear here. I want to give you a final thing, and I'm going to hush. I've already said that six times, and so I'm, I'm about to wear my welcome out. But I, I want you to notice, we see the asking of and the answer of, but we see the atmosphere of. I'm just going to touch on these. Look at verse 32 with me. The Bible says, "...in the multitude of them that believe were of one heart and of one soul." We see unity in the church. I'll tell you, we wouldn't have, uh, our churches wouldn't be battlefields today if we were praying meeting churches. They wouldn't be war zones if we were praying meeting churches. I, it's hard to be mad with somebody that you just got through praying with. You know that? It's hard to be upset at someone that you've just got through sharing a burden on your heart and asking them to meet a need or asking them to pray that God would meet a need. It's kind of hard to be upset with them. And it's commanded. The Bible says we're to bear you one another's burden, so fulfilling the law of Christ. It's just hard to be mad at people you pray with. It's hard to. We find that this prayer meeting fostered an atmosphere of unity. Unity, not union. My old preacher used to tell me that you can can tie two cat's tails together and throw them over a clothesline and you've got union. (laughs) But unity is something entirely different. In fact, we find that the Holy Ghost is present in all of these things that take place because we see unity first. But I want you to notice we see hospitality second. The Bible says that uh, they, they did not count all of what they had their own, but they sold all and gave to every man as he had need. Now, some of you say, that sounds like socialism. No, let me give you the difference between uh, socialism and, and the New Testament church. Uh, socialism is when the government makes you give. The New Testament church is when God makes you give. Amen? Isn't that right? I mean, the government can make you give, and that don't mean a thing, but when, when God gets in things and gets in your heart, and you begin to share and give what God's blessed you with, that means something. Listen, if, if America was still a church-centered nation, church-centered nation, and churches were still biblical, we wouldn't have any need for the welfare program. Isn't that right? We wouldn't have no need for it. Those that could work would work, and those that couldn't would be taken care of through the work of the local New Testament church. Now, assuming they're part of that church, uh, assuming that they are under the watch care of that church, I believe that's biblical. I don't believe it's biblical to get out here and buy everybody shoes and sandwiches and never give them the gospel. I'm not saying social gospel is what's biblical. I'm just merely saying uh, that if the New Testament church was doing what it ought to do in winning people to Christ and reaching their communities, we'd have a lot less need for these social safety nets. There was hospitality. They didn't have to vote on it either, amen? I mean, I'm not anti-business meeting. I'm not, that's not what I'm trying to say. I'm just saying they just did it. They just did it. They saw a need and they met it. Don't you love those kinds of people? Don't you love, don't you love the, the kind of person that when they see a problem, instead of complaining about it, they solve it? Don't you love that kind of person? You see people sometimes. How many of you all know somebody like this? Uh, they'd sit there and they'd come to you and, and, and they'd say, 
Well, there's trash on the floor in there. Do you see that? Took him more time and energy and worry to go and complain to you about it than did to just pick it up. <laughs> Isn't that pitiful? No, I like a person that sees a need and just does it. I'm not talking about being steamrolled into something they didn't sign up for. I'm talking about just having an attitude of hospitality. Not all about us. Amen. We see a final thing. We see liberality. Not liberalness, but liberality. We find that not only did they give freely to one another, but we find that they sold their possessions and gave to the work of God. Prayer meeting churches are churches that are liberal in their giving. The fact is, when we begin to pray and, and when we begin to work in the economy of the eternal, the temporal doesn't mean that much to us. We're willing to make that eternal investment. Let me tell you something. Any penny you give to the work of God, the, the real true work of God, the local New Testament church, any penny you give to them, neighbor, it's not wasted. It's not wasted. If it's used for God's glory and for the souls of sinners, it's not wasted. It's not wasted. And what we need, listen, what we need to have confidence in our churches is to be centered and bathed in prayer. We won't be, you know, it's said before, <laughs> you've heard the old joke, I think Ken Trivet said, you know, told the joke about where the, the devil decided he was going to kill a Christian. So he took out his bow and his arrow and he shot a heart, uh, or shot a uh, arrow at his head, but he was protected by the helmet of salvation. And he shot an arrow at his chest, but he was protected by the breastplate of righteousness. And, and shot one at his, at his leg and, and he covered it with a shield of faith. So he ran around the backside of him, shot him in the wallet, and he bled to death. <laughs> You know, God help us when we care more about the temporal things God's given us than the eternal business that God set us to. That comes from a lack of prayer. Because without, listen, without prayer, we, gain, we get removed from the eternal. You can study the Word of God all you want, but if you're not praying, you're going to be out of touch with eternity. You can go to church all you want, but if you're not praying, you're out of touch with the eternal. You can even give the gospel all you want, and you should. You gotta give it more than what you want to, amen. But you can do that and still be out of touch with the eternal. It's prayer that connects the heart of the believer to the throne room of God. It's prayer that, like Jonathan Edwards said, would stamp eternity on our eyeballs. Until we become a prayer meeting church, we're never going to effectively accomplish the work and the will of God for our lives. It's going to take, hey, you say, preacher, is it all about meeting together? It's not all about meeting together, but part of it is. Or the New Testament church wouldn't have done it. And God wouldn't have put an emphasis on it. I'm not here tonight to preach the worth of the prayer meeting, but just to give an example of it. But suffice it to say that if it wasn't important, God wouldn't have done it. There's a lot of other things God could have put in that Bible than giving us a useless fact. So that leads me to believe everything in that Bible has purpose to it. Tonight, I hope if I've done anything, I've encouraged you to pray. Pray in your personal time, but pray with one another. You say, well, that prayer means not till June 7th. You don't have to wait till then to pray with believers. You don't have to wait till then. Hey, what in the world would be wrong with going to somebody and saying, listen, I know you're going through a lot. Let me pray with you. What would be wrong with going to someone and saying, listen, I'm, I'm struggling and I know you pray. And let's get on the altar and let's pray together. What would be wrong with getting together and saying, there's a need here, there's a need there. Let's just get together and pray and ask God to intervene. I believe, Lord, be pleased with that, don't you? I believe we need to get serious about prayer.